a number of people who knew Ambassador Dubs, as I recall, actually made arguments this is not what he would have wanted. Almost immediately, we decided to uh, cut any economic development assistance with the Afghan regime. We pulled the Peace Corps out. But as far as Afghanistan and the Afghan people, then probably they need even more in the way of aid and assistance and the U.S. presence in a positive way. He wanted to see the Afghan people thrive and the country to become independent, robust, economically competent. He was a dedicated professional, loved his country, and died for his country. The murder of Spike Dubbs in February 1979 led to dire consequences for the United States, for Afghanistan, and ultimately for the Soviet Union. In this episode, we'll look at the Americans' official response to the crime. The Carter administration left a vacuum in Kabul the Soviet Union eagerly filled, only to land the Red Army in a bloody, fatal quagmire, and condemn the world to a 40-year cycle of escalating violence. But first, a closer look at how Russian spymasters applied their tradecraft to cover up the carnage at the Hotel Kabul. How they fabricated false scenarios, cast innuendo, and published outright lies, all to ensure the historical record was wiped clean of incriminating evidence. In our last episode, we heard from former KGB colonel Sergei Bakhtarin. American witnesses saw Bakhtarin taking command of soldiers of the Afghan communist regime in the hours before the deadly storming of Hotel Room 117. But Bakhtarin denies the Americans' account of his actions. Understand, the order to shoot was given by the Afghans. The Afghans acted on their plan. They determined it. Bakhtarin claims he and his KGB colleagues were silent observers who only acted in support of the Afghan regime. Of course, they demanded that we provide ammunition, which was fired from the machine guns. But when the door was forced, a German Schmeitzer was not our weapon. This means that the Americans supplied the weapons from which the shots were fired. No one else, not even Afghan officials, claimed a Schmeisser submachine gun was used. The evidence shows the Americans at the hotel were unarmed and tried to prevent any shooting taking place. Bakhtarin makes another claim that Spike's own government was involved in the kidnapping. He says the U.S. conspired with the Afghan communist regime's volatile U.S.-educated foreign minister, Amin. But the fact is that the matter itself is dark. How and why there was such a conspiracy and uh, for what? Because the explanation could be the double game of Amin. It may even be that he was afraid that the dubs might reveal his connections to the Americans. There was such a flirtation going on at that time. The Americans were betting on it. A book Bakhtarin contributed to goes even further. Virus A claims Spike was a covert CIA operative, that he visited the hotel with men resembling his kidnappers the day before the Valentine's Day incident. Laughably untrue, according to former CIA and State Department witnesses I've interviewed. It turns out Bakhtarin wrote his own account of his time in Afghanistan, one he did not tell us about. He authored a chapter in a book titled Afghan, Again Afghan, in it, he describes several of his operations. 
Bakhtarin was the Soviet embassy's stealthy facilitator, the go-to officer to stage difficult covert actions. He writes of being personally commended by his KGB boss and future Soviet leader, Yuri Andropov. At length, Bakhtarin explains how he helped spirit KGB special troops into Kabul prior to the Soviet invasion in December 1979. How he concealed the commandos prior to their surprise attack on Amin's palace, where the KGB murdered the then-president Amin, his son, and his guards. This assassination and mass killing is not an event the Russians are shy acknowledging, even today. It is a celebrated episode in the country's military history, widely known by its KGB codename, Operation Storm 333. Bakhtarin devotes page after page to the attack, yet not a single word about his role at the Hotel Kabul just 10 months earlier. He doesn't even mention Spike Dub's name. A search of other Russian publications reveals striking similarities with Bakhtarin's account. A book by a former Soviet GRU military spy claims Spike was a pawn in a bogus kidnapping, a caper conceived by the CIA to discredit the Soviet-backed Afghan regime. If only we could look into the KGB's records. Surely the espionage archives would shed light on the dark passageways of this cold case. In fact, we can do just that, thanks to the defection in 1992 of a career KGB archivist. From the ashes of the Soviet Empire, Vasily Mitrokhin gifted Western spy agencies and the public with the contents of thousands of top-secret KGB documents and cables. His motivation? He said he was horrified by the evidence he saw of Stalin's purges against honest Russians. Mitrokhin died in 2004. His writings are spoken here by a voice artist. I could not believe such evil. It was all planned, prepared, thought out in advance. It was a terrible shock when I read these things. A major in the KGB's first directorate, Mitrokhin gained access to some of the agency's most sensitive records. He copied many of them by hand, each day smuggling his work home in his shoes. The U.S. obtained Mitrokhin's archive via Britain's MI6. The FBI declared it to be, quote, the most complete and extensive intelligence ever received from any source. One Cold War case Mitrokhin took particular care to document? The death in Afghanistan of Ambassador Spike Dubbs. At times, he refers to the Russians' intelligence apparatus as the Cheka, after the first Soviet secret police force. The Cheka was anxious about the appointment of Dubs as ambassador to Afghanistan. When he had been in Moscow as a first secretary at the embassy, he had been closely covered. The KGB considered that Dubs knew the region well and that he was connected to the CIA and trusted by them. Former CIA officers who worked with Spike say his only connection to their agency was within the embassy hierarchy. Technically, like other Foreign Service officers, they served under the ambassador, a State Department official. Mitrokhin writes that the Soviets' paranoia over Spike had everything to do with his knowledge and skills as a diplomat. 
on August 3, 1978, the KGB resident in Kabul received a telegram about Dobbs, which expressed the fear that it cannot be ruled out that in his contacts with the Afghan leadership, Dobbs will take advantage of his deep understanding and knowledge of the situation in the USSR and Soviet foreign policy. This, in our view, is one of the most dangerous aspects of his activities. The residents in Kabul wrote to Moscow in the same vein that the American embassy in Kabul under Dobbs was actively engaged in spreading propaganda amongst the people and the intelligentsia. The KGB's fears over Dobbs later turned to malice, according to Matrokin, especially when it came to deceiving the Americans and the world about what really happened on Valentine's Day 1979. The KGB's chief in Kabul, Vili Avasadchi, was ordered to contrive a cover story together with the Afghan regime's foreign minister. On the following day, Osachi visited Amin on instructions from the center in Moscow to agree on how to justify the affair to the Americans. They agreed to express their condolences to the Americans, to lower flags on the government buildings and to print photographs of the four terrorists in the newspapers. In order to frustrate requests from the Americans to question the detained terrorist and hunt down the one who escaped, it was decided to shoot the one who had been detained and to shoot another prisoner pretending that he was the fourth terrorist. The story that all four kidnappers had been killed during the assault would be fed to the newspapers. During the night, both the doomed men were executed. Matrokin's account matches the evidence. Two more murders helped hide the true circumstances of Spike's killing. And when the KGB disposed of Amin 10 months later, the Soviets ramped up their blame game. Amin, they said, was the real villain. When Dobbs was in the hands of the terrorists in the Kabul hotel, Amin gave orders for the otherwise needless assault and ordered that no mercy should be shown. The Russians didn't stop there. They tried to implicate Spike's own countrymen. In February of 1980, the KGB residents in Kabul used the commander of the People's Militia in an attempt to disseminate more disinformation on the Dubs affair. The KGB conjured up an investigation that never was and planted false stories. The results of the investigation proved that the Americans were involved in the death of the ambassador. A newspaper article laid the blame on the Americans. And so, to sum up, the Russian intelligence networks resorted to murder, to a multi-layered disinformation campaign, and to character assassination, both of a former ally and a rival diplomat, all to direct suspicion away from Soviet spies. If Mitrokin hadn't died 15 years ago, we could be forgiven for thinking his revelations are about today's Russian spycraft. Remember those two clean-cut young Russian men traveling from Moscow to Salisbury, England in March of 2018? Just to see the famous cathedral spire, they said, were only tourists. It was just a coincidence they happened to be in town when a former Russian spy, Sergei Skripal and his daughter, were poisoned with a Soviet-era nerve agent, Novichok. But no sooner had they spun their cover story for Russian television than their real identities were blown. Both are military intelligence officers, GRU operatives, 
two of President Putin's best. Successors to Sergei Bakhtarin and his cohorts a generation before them. Which invites the conclusion, why would the Soviet leadership order the KGB to lie about the murder of Spike Dubs, other than to hide their guilt? Spike Dubs, the person, was largely lost in the trauma and mystery of his death. This was a man who loved to play the piano, a warm and open man who enjoyed hosting parties for his embassy staffers and their families, who even took on a role in the Kabul Amateur Dramatic Society's production of Oklahoma, a show that had to go on without him. But none of that could compete with the other earth-shaking world news on Valentine's Day, 1979. The U.S. Embassy in Tehran overrun by protesters. Chinese troops marching into Vietnam. The Soviets shunning American overtures on arms control. Engulfed by those storms, President Carter was advised by hawks on his team to act quickly and harshly in response to the killing of his ambassador to Afghanistan. In hindsight, this is the real, enduring tragedy of Spike's death. Because in the smoking ruins of Room 117, his hopes and ambitions for Afghanistan and for peace died along with him. Former consul Mike Malinowski recalls the dizzying emotions of that time. The embassy shocked, our government in Washington shocked by what happened and the way it happened. Almost immediately we decided to uh, cut any economic development assistance with the Afghan regime. We pulled the Peace Corps out. We drew the embassy down considerably, in part because the security situation in the country was getting quite dicey for the regime. The Afghan resistance had formed, and they were bringing the fight already at that time to the PDPA, and basically were closing in around Kabul. At that point, the embassy personnel was forbidden to travel more than 50 kilometers from the capital. Was this an event that further polarized the U.S. and Soviet influences in Afghanistan? Yes, definitely. But even beyond that, it polarized our entire set of relations with the Soviet Union. Former DEA officer Doug Wankel. A number of people who knew Ambassador Dubs, as I recall, actually made arguments for this is not what he would have wanted. He would have wanted, obviously, to find out what really happened, do what was necessary to, to bring judgment and punishment if that was necessary for certain groups. But as far as Afghanistan and the Afghan people, then probably they need even more in the way of uh, aid and assistance and the U.S. presence uh, in, in a positive way. So the people that knew him well argued against uh, many of the things that did transpire at that point. When you speak with people who served with Spike, one word always comes up, hero. How should the American people remember Spike Dubs? As a patriot and as a person who gave his life for his country and an example of a great foreign service officer, a great diplomat, again, who gave his life for the country. Spike's daughter, Lindsay Dubs McLaughlin. Well, I think his name is engraved on the wall of the State Department. So I think in some ways he is acknowledged as a, as a hero, as are all our fallen Foreign Service officers. I do think that he, he, would, 
<laughs> he's like I mentioned, he was very humble. And if, you know, everyone, anyone described him as an American hero, he would have said, oh, no, not, not me. You know, I mean, he saw himself as being someone who just wanted to do the work of peace in the world. And that was, you know, that's, he didn't see that as heroic. He just saw it as something that he wanted to do and that he needed to do. I think he would be a little bit embarrassed if anybody said to him, yo, you're an American hero. But I love the sentiment. I think it's, um, it's very touching. My dearest Lindsay, if we were a perfect society in every respect, I would be much less uneasy about pointing the finger elsewhere. So before becoming indignant about situations in other countries, I would like to see us getting our point across by becoming a model which other societies would consider worthy of emulation. Whether this government can maintain a semblance of independence from the Soviets is not yet quite clear. Our problem is to do those things which help Afghans become self-reliant and resilient, and thus confident enough to ward off undue and perhaps harmful pressures from the outside. Much love, Dad. Philosophically, that's always what he had been leaning toward, as I said, more connecting with people, not build up the military, get confrontational, because that is a dead end in many respects. He wanted to get out and see the country and learn learn about the people, uh, shop in the marketplace and, you know, meet all these interesting people. I mean, that was a lot of what he was about. Did you get a sense for what his ambitions were, his hopes were for Afghanistan? Well, I think he said it. I mean, he wanted to see the Afghan people thrive and the country to become, you know, an independent, robust, economically competent, <laughs> you know, society. I mean, that's what, and because he knows that the more, or he knew that the more countries in the world have that, the safer the world is for everyone, including the United States. You know, in the immediate aftermath of your father's death, it contributed to the decision by the president to reduce American aid, to move out dependents of embassy families, reduce the embassy staff, remove the Peace Corps, mm -hmm. disengage, mm -hmm. while at the same time the CIA began supporting the war against the communist regime in the countryside. Yeah. What do you feel your father's reaction would be to know what occurred? Oh, I think he would have been deeply saddened. He had started making some inroads, you know. He had started to do some, some work, and it feels that all of that work that he had started came to naught. I think he would be very sad. It's tragic enough that a succession of wars and terror campaigns have laid waste to Afghanistan since 1979. But the predictability of these catastrophes deepens the sense of waste and loss. At times, Spike's letters to Lindsay have a chilling quality. He could see the superpowers were playing with fire just prior to the outbreak of four decades of war. Undoubtedly, this new government is Marxist-Leninist in its lineage. Yet, I can't quite describe the brand of Marxist-Leninism that this regime is in reality. Professions of independence and non-alignment abound. Yet. One can't help but wonder how beholden to the Soviet Union this regime feels itself to be. Some signs of cleavage to the more radical states is not reassuring. Yet one cannot ignore that this people is ferociously independent and deeply religious, characteristics which must give any regime pause if its intentions are to impose an alien ideology upon this nation. 
Rumors of resistance, especially in the tribal areas, are rampant, and one hears that there is concern about the heightened presence of Soviet advisors. While the outward atmosphere is calm, one senses disquiet below. One last question. Should the U.S. government be doing more to find out, even now, what really happened? Yes, but only because I think it would, be, it would lead to more insight about what is occurring in Afghanistan and that part of the world today. And, you know, we are in, the world's in a lot of trouble right now. And I feel that anything that can bring some, shed some kind of light or bring some sort of insight about, you know, events and how things are falling together might go some of the way towards seeing our way out of these troubles. So I would say, you know, it would be great if the American government wanted to pursue more about figuring out exactly what happened, but not just for the sake of figuring out what happened, more for seeking wisdom about what, you know, what were the factors, what was really at play, because that might give us some insight as to what is going on right now. As we've seen, there is circumstantial evidence pointing to the Soviets. Given their fear that Spike might turn the Afghan regime away from Moscow, the Russians benefited from his demise. But suspicions aren't evidence. So the question becomes, can we re-examine the body of evidence that does exist and possibly add to it, and do so in a way that leads to answers? For starters, that puzzle within the mystery. Who fired those pistol rounds? The four shots after the machine guns fell silent, the ones that momentarily stopped the Americans rushing to Spike's aid in their tracks. After those shots sounded, Mike and Doug and the others say they saw no one enter or leave room 117. They found only three bodies in the room, Spike and two of his captors. When you entered the hotel room and retrieved Ambassador Dub's body, did you take time to check in the room, under the bed. Did you inspect under the bed, for instance? No, we did not because, again, our main uh, goal was to secure the ambassador and get him to proper medical treatment. On the way in or out of, of the room, did you stop and inspect the bathroom? No, only a glance that it was a bathroom. Uh, but no, I did not. None of us had, you know, had the chance or the opportunity to do an inspection of the hotel room other than to notice the ambassador slumped over and the two dead corpses on the floor. In the time interval between the main gunfire ending and the four phantom gunshots, if I can call them that, okay. commencing, would someone have had time to walk from the bathroom into the main part of the hotel room? Uh, probably because it was really, you know, it was a small room and it, the bathroom was right next to the wall in against which the ambassador was sitting. When you were in the hallway with the stretcher, with the gurney, and you heard the last of the four phantom gunshots, yeah. between the end of those gunshots and your arrival in the hotel room, would there have been time for somebody to hide under the bed or conceal themselves in the bathroom? Yes, possible, yes. But again, we didn't look, other than to look, okay, a bathroom, but I didn't see any figures in it. Has there ever been any explanation from any authority as to who fired the 522 caliber bullets that killed Ambassador Dubs and the gunshots that you heard, the phantom gunshots, has there ever been any explanation as to who fired those shots? No, no explanation to me, 
either when I was uh, posted at the embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan, nor when I was working in the State Department at a time when I was office director for Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Bangladesh. And finally, when you entered the room, you found two Afghans dead on the floor who you conclude were kidnappers. Yes. I mean, we stepped. I stepped on them. I didn't notice them until I stepped on them. And again, the room was full of smoke and haze. All I knew is that they were right in the end, end of the little, little entryway and before you got to the area of the, of the room where there were beds. But logically... Would you have expected them to still be alive when you arrived in the room? No, I didn't. I thought they were killed fairly uh, immediately. Uh, I mean, early on. Early on, yeah. Given given the ferocity of the gunfire. Exactly. Given the ferocity of the fire, and the fact that people were coming in the room as well. So this puzzle has remained with you always. Puzzle has remained with me for what? How many years this has been? Forty years. Forty years. Yes. In our next episode, the challenge of conducting a scientific or forensic reinvestigation of this crime. Normally, forensics experts would comb through the physical evidence, bullets, shell casings, and weapons, damage to the walls, floor, and ceiling, autopsy results, trace elements, and samples and reconstructions. Little of that evidence survived. The Russians and the Afghan regime tried to conceal and destroy anything having to do with the kidnapping and assault. But that's not the end of this story. There are still things forensic science can tell us as we try to answer the question, who murdered Spike Dubs? <laughs>